0: Welcome to BME Culture Happy Hour, our roundtable podcast about what we are learning, doing and creating. I'm the co-host, Dr. Joe Ledoux, and the Associate Chair for Student Learning and Experience in BME at Georgia Tech.
1: Hey, I'm your co-host. I'm Candace Chung. I am a fourth year biomedical engineering student at Georgia Tech.
0: This week's show, we have a very special guest, Dr. Steve Potter, and he's going to give us an overview of what the maker movement is because he just did a sabbatical to take a deep dive into that culture. And hopefully he'll tell us about how he thinks it'll impact engineering education. And as always, we will close the show with what it is that we just can't let go of this week. Before we dive in to talking about the maker movement, Steve, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here at Tech and where are you going next?
2: Okay. Uh, I have been for the last 12, 13 years or so, A professor in the bme department probably most of my students have graduated by now because i've been on sabbatical since 2013 there may be a few seniors who might remember me from pbl class that are still here but um i've been away um for a couple of years immersing myself in the maker movement because i love to make things uh, and I noticed that running a lab here in BME, it was my grad students and the undergrad researchers in my lab who got to do all the fun stuff. They got to do all the making, and I'm stuck in the office writing grants and editing papers and, and of course, teaching, which is something that I very much enjoy doing. Um, so, so I said, how can I get more hands-on? Uh, let's go learn more about the maker movement. And I suppose the the formative event that got me into that was that the um, Atlanta Mini Maker Fair was held at Georgia Tech for a couple of years, and I actually had my own booth there in 2012, I think, mm-hmm. where I showed off some woodworking that I have been doing. Uh, made my own computer keyboard out of wood, and I have this candy dish that uh, levitates in midair. To uh, I didn't know how useful it would be until the Whitaker Building got infested by ants. <laughs> And then it became the ant proof candy dish. The ants <laughs> couldn't find their way to the candy because it was floating in midair. Uh, so that it sounds like it could be useful
0: handy. for. Uh- Bird feeders too. It the could squirrels. be, yeah.
2: <laughs> if, uh, yeah, if the bird, as long as the birds don't knock into do it too hard. So that's one of the problems with the <laughs> ant-proof candy dishes. If you bump it too hard, you have candy all over the floor, and it was great for uh, setting people at ease when they come to visit me. You know, they they just knock the candy all over the floor. So <laughs>
0: the keyboard is legendary in my family because uh, <laughs> my wife and my oldest son, who's a Georgia Tech graduate now, went to the Maker Faire and saw that keyboard. They came home very excited about it. It's So cool.
2: So I should mention a little bit about my lab's research. My lab is now closed down because I have resigned uh, my professor position in order to make making full-time freelance kind of career. And that's probably going to be in Ireland. My wife is from Ireland, and so we're going to be moving to Ireland this summer. And we spent this last summer there exploring all the maker spaces in Ireland, and it was very cool and exciting. And I thought, yeah, I could definitely live here. So um, so my lab has been busy uh, trying to connect brains to computers for about the last 20 years. And when I say brains, I mean usually a culture dish of neurons that we got from rats that we then uh, hook up to computers and we sometimes use them to control robots or simulated creatures on the computer and we try to get them to learn something. We send in electrical stimulation or sometimes optical stimulation and uh, we try to train the neurons and the nice thing about having them in a Petri dish is you can then put that thing on the microscope and watch the learning process while it happens. So we were trying for years and years and we succeeded a little bit to, to watch learning happen at the cellular and network level. You know, there's a lot of people doing it at the sort of whole animal level. There's a lot of people looking at the molecular biology side of things or the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, for example. But there's not very many people that are looking at the network level. How do, how do thousands of neurons interact together to, uh, to do learning? And, and where does the learning happen? Where is a memory stored? What's an idea? What's a thought? All these are questions that we were trying to attack in our lab at the cellular and network level. And I'm a little bit sad, well, more than a little bit sad to say that the lab is closed down. Um, our research continues on in the form of, you know, the graduate students that graduated from my group and even the undergraduates who did some good research. Um, and there's a couple of graduate students that are still here finishing up their PhDs.
0: That's just ridiculously cool. It sounds like <laughs> science fiction. Um, I'm just wondering, as a person who's done a lot of cell culture, I'm thinking about these dishes, which I heard the other day, you kept going for two years at one point and do you i mean this is kind of a weird question but talk about the pressure of like keeping this that culture alive and yeah and if it has learned in some way i mean do you feel some sort it's like a pet dog or something yeah
2: very much so we definitely got attached to our culture dishes and this was my first postdoc tom Demars, who took care of that one and uh it was an even more amazing than that it was a dish that I had electroplated with a, tech, a special technique that we subsequently wrote a paper uh, years and years later. We finally said, we should we should write this up, how I, how I made this thing have a really good signal to noise ratio compared to the ones we bought. And um, that's now a very well-cited paper. But Tom DeMars took care of this culture. And if it were to get even one germ in it, it would be dead. So he had to keep it sterile that whole two years. Every time he fed it every week or so with new culture medium, he had to have meticulous cell culture protocol. Uh, It sort of favors people who have extreme attention to detail. And and Tom was very good at that and took very good care of it. He did a lot of experiments with it, too. I mean, this was not like something he left in the corner because he was keeping it alive. This was like his workhorse culture. Like, all right, we're going to do another experiment with this thing. It ran Mayart, this art science collaboration that we have that was drawing pictures on big pieces of paper controlled by neurons. This thing was one of Mayart's brain for a while.
0: Whoa. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I, I get a sense there's a little bit of that maker movement in you from the beginning of your research um, to make all this research happen. You're essentially making fancy stuff in the lab. But I guess to back up a little bit, what is the maker movement and why should
2: we care? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned at a talk that I gave for BME a few days ago, you know, it kind of defines humankind that we were makers since we first picked up a rock and started to cut something with it or debunk an animal on the head with it, or, uh, we were building tools since long, long ago, you know, the, and the other, an- there are a few tool using animals, but there aren't too many animals that build tools that actually make tools. And so making is very much human defines humankind, I think. and, and um, in, you know, if you watch any child at play, you will see them very quickly start picking things up and making stuff with them. You know, they don't just look at their surroundings. They make stuff. That's what that's what humans do. So so it's in all of us. It's in our genes. It's genetically encoded in us to, to, to do this sort of thing. And unfortunately, in, in modern society, we become so specialized and most of us tend to lose it. Uh, and it gets, you know, subverted into other things that we don't think of as making. Uh, but we could if we, we conceptualize what we're doing we can we can put it into a maker context. The maker movement has uh, really boomed recently, though, because of a few technical innovations that have made it very very popular. And so, if you just Google the maker movement, you'll now see just tons of stuff that you would not have seen five years ago. Those things include microprocessors that are very cheap and easy to use, such as Arduino's and Raspberry Pis and. And uh, beagle and you know beaglebone blackboards, so you can get an entire computer the size of the cre- of a credit card now that you could hack. You could put Linux on it and 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 do all sorts of very cool things. The Internet of Things is another buzzword that you might have heard. That's part of the maker movement. The maker movement is sort of pushing this thing forward because all these creative ideas are coming out of the maker movement to uh, how to connect up gadgets to each other, to you while you're moving around, to the internet, uh, sending data this way and that. Uh, so the Internet of Things is all about connectivity, and that's something that people are naturally also very good at. We, it's, in our, it's in our genes to be social animals. So connectivity is, is, is something that the, the maker movement is, is all about connectivity. So, so one of the points there is do it together. Instead of DIY, do it yourself. Uh, maker movement is all about going to a maker space where there will be expensive tools you can use. So at Georgia Tech, we have the invention studio. you have got your uh, machine shop down in the basement of Whitaker. Places like that where there are things that you probably couldn't afford to buy for your own shop, and plus, not only do you get to use these cool tools, but there's great people there who are experts at using them, who will train you how to use them, and you can be their apprentice and, and learn it up from them. And then there are people that don't know how to use them who still might have great ideas to share with you about their projects or about your project. So there are many benefits to spending time in one of these maker spaces, whether it's on campus or off campus, um, and and taking advantage of New things that the maker movement is coming up with, you know, not just microprocessors, but 3D printers and CNC carving devices of all sorts, laser cutters, you know, all these things are just becoming an order of magnitude or or several orders of magnitude cheaper than they were 10 years ago. They existed, you know, 10 years ago, all of these things existed and our lab had a 3D printer that costs, I think it was $70,000, you know, an object printer is really cool, but you can make one yourself now that could do just as good a job for about 1500 bucks. You know, it really changes the name of the game here to where any person, any lay person or especially a group of people in a makerspace can afford these things and start doing a lot of making.
1: So how can someone without any prior experience um, get over that initial, I suppose, intimidation of the maker movement and getting involved?
2: So... At, if they're a student at Georgia Tech, the obvious answer would be to spend time in the machine shop. Uh, they have what's the apprenticeship program called there? The, the guild. The guild. Yeah, the guild. You, to join the guild, um, or to go over to the invention studio and just spend time there. You know, and it's it could be intimidating and scary. Uh, so if you already know somebody who who is there who has been using the space, please ask them. Can you bring me along next time, mm-hmm. or can you schedule a time when it's kind of quiet there to tour me around the place? Uh, you could just barge in and say hello to who's ever there. And I'm sure they'd be delighted to to show you around and, and and start doing stuff with you. But some people might be inhibited to do that. That's perfectly OK. And one thing that's blown me away about every makerspace I've been to is just how friendly everybody is there. You know, the people are not, they don't have an attitude. Um, they're usually very willing to put down whatever they're doing and welcome you with open arms. I've been struck by by that. There's a lot of quirky characters in Makerspaces because they're so inclusive. You know, it's like, we'll welcome anyone. Um, (laughs) And that's fine. I love that. But it means that you know, there's some weird projects going on that you'll just go, you'll be scratching your head going, well, why is that? Why are they doing that? I don't get what this is about. It's pretty weird. Uh, but people could say that about my lab too. You know, it's the same thing. So, so just be open-minded about the people that you meet there and realize they might not be extroverts. They might be very introverted like you are, and they're just as scared as you are um, to meet people and, and to do new things. Uh, but they did it. You know, they are there doing new things. So you can too.
0: Can you give me an example of, like, something that you've made that you are
2: you think is particularly cool? Uh, would you like that to be in my professional world or in my personal world? I think something more, I, I'm interested personal. in more. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm interested in something more that, like, you could tell us about the two-photon microscope, which I think Well, What, what? Yeah, he made a two-photon microscope, which is so cool, but on the other hand, most people aren't going to feel like they're going to do
2: that anytime soon. <laughs> but maybe something
0: that other people could imagine doing? I don't know.
2: Yeah, well. Uh, one of the things that I'm very excited about nowadays is citizen neuroscience. The idea of, of taking, um, taking the tools that we use in academia, which are ungodly expensive, you know, and we have to write these million-dollar grants in order to pay for them. Recently, it has become possible, thanks to a lot of um, you know, cheaper electronics and whatnot, to make these things yourself for reasonably cheap. My lab made some version, you know. So when we buy it off the shelf, we're talking to interface to brain cells, uh, we buy equipment that costs at least 100,000 bucks or so. Our lab then made an open source version of that that we call NeuroWriter that's only, and I put that in scare quotes, only $10,000, okay? <laughs> so that's that's the hardware and the software both. Um, and it's not that we're making any money. That's like how much it would cost for you to go online, look at the plans that we've posted there, and build it yourself. NeuroWriter. Uh, is a you know full fledged research package that was designed for researchers. Well, guess what? There are these guys like Backyard Brains that came up with a very similar thing for only like two hundred dollars or one hundred fifty dollars. You can solder together devices to interface to the nervous system, record your brain waves, record from cockroaches. You can you can control cockroaches with your smartphone and drive them around the floor with the Robo Roach. I am not joking. This is true. You go to go to Backyard Brain's website wow. and check it out. It's really cool Can and you hook bizarre. Can stuff up to dogs? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So so if you're talking about vertebrates, you have to get IACUC approval. Uh, so, yeah, if you if you want to do it for your dog, you first have to go to write a proposal for the IACUC and have it approved. And, you know, and if your dog is suffering from a disease like its pine limbs are paralyzed, you might get approved. You know, if you wanted to reactivate your dog, um, something like that. So, anyway... To get to your original question of something that I've done, um, this, uh, backyard brains thing is something I, I merely have just given workshops where I, I solder these things together, um, according to their plans. I didn't really hack them, but they're totally hackable and you could, could make, you could customize them however you want. And I showed kids, uh, how to, how to record their brain signals and things like that. So it's so it's easy to do. And what's I think revolutionary about this is the idea that lay people can do their own neuroscience research. This is something that has never been possible in history. And you think about astronomers and how they have amateur astronomers have made some fantastic discoveries, really important discoveries about what's going on out in space. Just buy a telescope, point it to the sky, and you can discover some new comet or whatever. It's going to hit the Earth. You could save the Earth, uh, <laughs> warn the Earth about. It. So neuroscience is at the is poised right now to do that. That somebody like you can buy one of these gadgets, uh, build it yourself, or get it pre-assembled, either, and um, and start to do research that will uncover some mechanisms of how the nervous system works. There's so much we don't know. I often say that we're kind of at a Victorian understanding of the brain, you know, like the, the Victorian age. If you were to ask somebody, how does the sun work? You know, they'd say, well, it's burning, you know, it's a hot flaming ball. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, but there were scientists at that time that were smart enough to do the calculations and say, if it were made of coal, it would have burned out a long time ago, you know, with was something special going on there. And the thing was fusion. They didn't know the first thing about fusion reactions. Victorian age. So we're kind of like that right now. There's probably a bunch of concepts about the brain and the nervous system. We just don't even have a clue yet. And you lay people can make these discoveries and, and be the next Einstein of the brain and say, look, <laughs> here's what here's what we didn't understand. You know, you guys uh, need to take this into account.
0: That's awesome. Um, hey, is 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 it always
2: about making something physical, the make a movement? Yeah, so it usually is, especially these days. Uh, before the maker movement really got going, there was still already quite a hacker movement mm-hmm. and hacker spaces where people would do coding. You know, they sit down with computers and they would come up with new software and break into systems and, you know... Uh,
0: Viruses. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> so so the hacker spaces, they weren't always bad. I, hackers just means that they're modifying things. It doesn't necessarily mean they're out to, up to no good. Those people... Uh, the, the media tends to portray them as being bad guys often. But, but in fact, most hackers are doing great and fantastic things and they're sharing their work. They're very open about it. Um, so to answer your question, there are a lot of maker projects that involve just software or just things that are digital. You know, you could make a web page and call yourself a maker. You could make a, a commercial website that has some sort of service on it mm-hmm. and, and say, look, I am, I, I've made a service. Podcasts are a great example of that. No, We're so part
0: of the maker movement. You are, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah you already are, and you didn't even know it. Podcasts, uh, and you guys really are inclusive <laughs> interviews. Yeah, so that's one thing about the maker movement is it's very diverse. There, there are. Uh, maker spaces of all sorts there's commercial ones there are there's ones in academia and universities like this there are ones that are in elementary schools even I've been to an elementary school that had a bunch of 3D printers and third graders are building yeah. stuff out of them so so they're at all different levels in corporations some corporations are realizing that some of their Ooh. you know the janitors and cooks like to make stuff and they gave them a maker space and realized wait, wait a sec these folks are brilliant <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing cooking our lunch for us uh, they're, they're making great food <laughs> but we, they could be making more stuff for us. So anyway, uh, there's yeah, you could you could uh, have, you could make things of all sorts, whether they're tangible or intangible. I think that one of the key um, memes about the maker movement is sharing. you know that there's so much sharing going on. and nowadays there are so many tools on the internet for sharing things that makes it much easier. So that's one of the reasons why it's taking off now almost like open source stuff, you know. Yeah, you know, open source um, hardware and software and
1: Yeah, I think one of my or related to like that sharing my one of my favorite sites um and it is on my frequently viewed on my homepage is Thingiverse. I oh, love wow. Thingiverse, they have oh. so many things.
2: <laughs> so that's a an open source site to download plans to 3D print things, right? Oh, okay. And
1: I, I have multiple nerdy. So I what know.
2: kind of thing have you gotten from Thingiverse?
1: So I have a Squirtle. I also have a 20 sided die for Dungeons and Dragons.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
0: Noticing a trend here.
1: Oh no. <laughs> But yeah, Thingiverse has a lot of really cool things. I also have a little like nerdy monster pencil cup holder, mm-hmm. so I like Thingiverse. I do like that open source, very inclusive environment. Yeah, that is teri- not I guess stereotypical of makerspaces and that community. It's it's great.
0: So you printed these things.
1: Pardon? you printed these with oh a thing? yeah, mm-hmm. I did this um, with the Makerbots downstairs. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I went to a um, 3D printing workshop that was held in a public library in, in California, where I'm staying right now, uh, and they they said, uh, you know, if anybody wants to try uh, printing something, go to Thingiverse, and I instantly went there, downloaded a brain, my favorite part of the body, <laughs> and and I printed it. Unfortunately. It got halfway through the printing and something went wrong. And and so I only had half a brain. So <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> that was kind of emblematic of my whole career, I think. <laughs> Maybe a good paperweight. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so kind of a strange question, but like, where do the ideas come from? How do you know? How do you decide what to make? How do you? Mm. Me personally or yeah. in general? Yeah,
2: you. Like, how, how do you, how's your creative yeah. process work? For me, it's, there's always some need. And I say, <laughs> ooh, uh, how can I do that? Um, so with, I'll, I'll mention. Did I talk about my keyboard already? I think you mentioned I, it, but yeah. Didn't you? So, so I made a, a keyboard out of wood because I love woodworking. But the idea came from the fact that I had this surplus keyboard from IBM AT, and I learned to program on IBM AT, and that was been when I was an undergrad at UC San Diego, nineteen ninety nineteen eighty five or so. So in eighty five, the AT was the hot computer of the day, and uh, you know this thing had. Twelve megahertz clock, (laughs) 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 you know, like two megabytes of RAM. (laughs) Megabytes, no, not gigabytes, megabytes. And um, maybe a hundred megabyte hard drive. Yeah. Oh, I don't. There was no such thing as hard drives. There were floppy drives. I don't think they had a hard drive yet. Uh, So. Yeah, so, so anyway, these keyboards are fantastic, though. They're bomb-proof. They click like crazy. And the, in the in the computer lab that I learned to program in Pascal, it was just a racket. You couldn't hear yourself think because there was so many keyboards clicking away there. But the tactile feel of a clicky keyboard, I just love. Ooh. So I had the surplus keyboard, and I'm like, this is so cool. But it is the ugliest beige thing, <laughs> the ugliest piece of beige plastic you have ever seen with a big hunk of metal in the bottom of it to make it heavy just for the sheer weight of it. You know, IBM like, yes, we want it to feel expensive. Um so, so, so I said, okay, I'm just going to keep the mechanism and, but make it beautiful. And that was, that was how the, the prop, that was the initial idea there was, was that I had this keyboard and I wanted to make it beautiful. And I said, woodworking is probably the way I'd like to do that. I could have just painted it or something. I did that actually for my iMac. I got one of the very first Bondi blue iMacs and that would have been, I don't know, <laughs> 98 or whenever and they first came the out. Is it one of those
1: blockish ones?
2: This, no, this is a, a round aerodynamic computer. You know, it's like bubble shaped kind of. Yeah. And they came out in all different colors. It was when Apple decided to make colorful things instead of oh. beige things. It was the first colorful thing they ever made. In fact, it was the first eye thing. Was, the word, you know, how they put i in front of everything. iPods, i yeah. this, i that. iMac was the first one. And, and so anyway. Right.
0: I remember that. Yeah.
2: So I got it. It was beautiful Bondi blue, but the front of it was kind of graph paper looking gray stuff. I said, that's pretty mm-hmm. ugly. You know, even though they they redesigned really the shape of it well and the color I liked in the back, but so I so I went to the paper store and I got all this beautiful origami paper and I cut out little pieces and and did decoupage on the front of the of the iMac. So sometimes the making is just inspired by me not being too happy with the aesthetics of something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's cool. Um, oh, by the way, is there a picture that
2: people can look at your keyboard on the internet? Side? Yeah, if you if you search, if you go to Instructables, I wrote a. A big detailed write-up on how I build the thing. And if you just search for wooden keyboard, you will Mm -hmm. find it Steve Potter's wooden keyboard is there.
1: Okay, I, I think I know what I'm doing for spring
2: break. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me over a year of oh, weekends to make that. I mean, with oh, Instructables, if you follow what I did on Instructables, you might be able to do it much quicker than I did because there was a lot of trial and error. And that was one of the points that I was trying to make. There was it was a learning process, and, and I love to learn by failing mm-hmm. and and uh, seeing what doesn't work. You know, you break things you, when you when you break things, you always learn something. So so I broke plenty of things. <laughs> In the process of building that keyboard. Or at least hopefully he learned. You try to learn. (laughs) Yeah, you try to learn. (laughs) Is
0: there anything else you want to any other thoughts you want to leave us with uh, about the maker movement?
2: Um get involved. Yeah. If you have even the slightest inclination, or even if you don't, uh you it will be fun to get involved. And what I say to the students is that this helps prepare you for jobs in the real world. If you if you go into if you graduate from Georgia Tech never having actually built something with your hands, you're going to be at a big disadvantage compared to other students who have. So you owe it to yourself. Even if you're planning to go into IT or something you don't think is involved in building things with your hands, you learn a lot of lessons building things with your hands and fixing things and coming up with design ideas.
1: I think that making like making stuff is really therapeutic. Like I like to knit a lot. Uh, so an example of something that I made very recently was a a koozie for like coffee, my coffee cup because oh, yeah. it doesn't have a handle. So I made a koozie for it. So I wouldn't burn myself. That's good. But it was very therapeutic, just like for a share knitting.
2: It's mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. I, I'm always in the flow when I'm making stuff. I
0: really enjoy yeah. that experience. All right. So this is the, let's wrap this up with what is it that we can't let go of this week? Do you want to start off Candice?
1: Uh, well, related kind of related to this. Uh, we just learned in capstone how to use the laser cutters in the guild And so I already designed uh, name tags for my capstone team that I'm going to cut out this week from wood.
0: Uh, Cool. You haven't made them yet though? You just designed it? I already designed it,
1: but I need to buy the wood.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. awesome. excited.
2: How about you, Steve? Uh, Well, I'm um, a photographer and I've been carrying a camera on my person since college. So 1984, I suppose, was when I got a little Minox tiny little spy camera and I built a case for it and had it tied to my ankle in college. And people are like, what is that? <laughs> like, I don't know. Let me take your picture. So so I have a lot of film photographs uh, that I just pulled out of storage the other day that I'm going to um, digitize, you know, because these things, I can't really appreciate them as much as my digital photographs. I can't look at them as easily. I have to actually go through the folders of film or negatives um, and the prints and uh, sort them, sort them out and look through them and see what's interesting in there. So I can't separate away from my photographs. I love those things. That's awesome. Yeah, digitize them. Put them on the cloud yeah. before your hard drive crashes. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm going to say I can't let go because you've been with us for pretty much the whole time I've been here. And now you're leaving, which is, uh, you know, I'm happy for you. <laughs> but I'm a little, little annoyed because uh, <laughs> you've done. I'm sad to go, too. This is a fantastic place, and yeah. I've had a really good time here. Yeah, and then you're heading off to Ireland at some point, which is awesome because I had my first experience in Ireland last year, and it's it was it is an amazing place. Beautiful, yeah, countryside and great people that's yeah. so friendly.
2: So I just Guinness. love the accent. And Guinness is not bad. So, <laughs> so it's there all
0: you grand. go.
1: It's all grand,
2: <laughs> well, I'm one of the few uh, people. my <laughs> wife and I are both teetotalers, so we'll be the few among the few people there who don't enjoy Guinness. <laughs> it's, it's probably better for
0: your health, I yeah. would guess. Um All right. Well that that ends this uh special edition of What's the Buzz podcast. Um, we would definitely like to hear any uh, of your listeners out there, any questions or comments you have, you can post them on our podcast website, which is um, gtbme.libsyn.com. So, Dr. Steve Potter, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Del and Candace for inviting me. Yeah, and we have the capability to interview via Skype. So we might, you know, get you from Ireland once you yeah. set up shop there, if you don't yeah, mind. Feel free. Bye. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you at our next episode. Take care.